Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world, with your hosts, David Ye and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, we have a free MSC company database categorized by industry sector, location, as well as internship and full-time titles, so you can find that link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. David and I are talking about the Hyperloop transportation technology, the system as a whole. We were actually just chatting offline and wanted to take it onto the recording. But David, you were wondering, like, what does it feel like to be in a Hyperloop system, right? Which is, you know, just like a a bullet train, but maybe on on steroids. Um, And I guess my thinking there was, well, if an airplane goes 300 miles per hour, we learned in the episode that Hyperloop goes 700 plus miles per hour. My thinking was that it might just be relatively the same. Like if it's within a system, a pressurized system, then you might feel like, I feel like there might not be much of a difference relatively speaking compared to an airplane. Yeah. I'm not sure because like if we like zoom out and think about our fundamental physics, <laughs> uh, even though we're in a pressurized container, what happens if we take an observer in like space or something? And so to them, we're still moving faster than we would be a plane. And so I, I'm not quite sure if this is true, but maybe one of the effects of like jet lag is because we're subjecting our bodies to like higher forces. And so I don't know if that would have anything to do with it. I would need a lot more experience in the medical field to draw any conclusions there. But (laughs) I just think it's uh, interesting that like with all these new technologies, there's all these new ideas that we need to discover. And then the questions go, how do we even test this out with things that haven't been invented yet? And so I think that's very interesting. Plus the speed of sound, I just looked it up, is like 767 miles per hour. So you're like nearing that speed of sound too, right? How much does that have an effect on on your body? What would that feel like? And I guess also like what systems would you have to implement within that capsule to actually make that like livable and comfortable for for a passenger? I think that's that's crazy. We we learned a little about what what that might feel like in the episode. So stick around for that. But what was your favorite part, David, about the episode, maybe materials wise, technical or, or in general? Yeah, I think one of the coolest things was one of my big hangups was how do we power a giant system? And so if we wanted to move from like California to Atlanta, how would we power such a long railway system? And so they've done a lot of thinking and a lot of research into it. And yeah, the answer is passive elements. And so in these passive elements, he was talking about Palback array, which is basically a way that you make magnets in a pattern that basically as you run along some sort of metal, conductive metal, it creates a a downforce from a magnetic EMF field. And so that helps you stay up longer. And so things such as that, like, are really interesting things that have been applied other places and now are being seen in a new light in this new application. And so I think that goes into one of your favorite parts beneath, which is what? Yeah. No. So what I thought was the most fascinating was their like unique business model where they have a bunch of like strategic partners that they give like equity or like stock options and kind of pitch that vision for the future of transportation. And in that way, they leverage other people's insights, their knowledge, their expertise to build their company up and create even more value or actually achieve their goals. Um, And I thought that was fascinating. And we actually in the episode get into why they do it, but also like why Andrea, our guest, believes that other companies don't do it right now and why that might be the next step for business strategy as a whole. But another favorite aspect of mine of the episode was storytelling. Um, I think that communication is imperative in the science space and it's often maybe not as natural for us engineers to communicate effectively. And so Andrea actually has a very unique background where he oversaw the engineering department, but he also oversaw like HR and has a background in media and storytelling. So stick around for that. It's really 
closer to the end of the episode where he goes into advice on how do you pitch that vision? Um, how do you communicate with others and let your words and your, your presentation resonate with your audience? So I thought that was very insightful. And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm about to hop on a plane myself to, to go to Yellowstone National Park for vacation. So I'm just imagining how that would be different maybe 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if all of a sudden we can, I can make that trip on a Hyperloop system. But yeah, super fascinating stuff. There's a lot to look forward to and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's get into it. We are super excited to welcome today's guest, Andrea Lamendola, the Chief Operating Officer of Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, a company changing the way people travel. Andrea has a unique background, which includes studying engineering, software, management, and media. And at Hyperloop TT, Andrea has overseen a variety of departments, including engineering, human resources, and global operations. He's passionate about communications and storytelling, as well as kind of the engineering field as a whole, which makes him a great ambassador for the newest form of transportation in over a century. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So yeah, so let's dive into your story. Puneeth mentioned a whole different range of activities, but you mentioned in a previous call that it was on a trip to India that you realized the potential impact and excitement for your Hyperloop technology. Could you elaborate on this trip and what you learned about the perception people have for this Hyperloop technology? Yes, David, that, that was 2015. We were still at the beginning of our journey in Hyperloop TT. And I remember it was the, with the two founders of the company and we visited Hyderabad for a big event. It was like thousands of people attending. We presented Hyperloop, of course, Hyperloop TT to this very large crowd. And we were on the stage talking about the technology and what it could bring to, to society. And I still remember, like it's, it's crazy, like, after the presentation, we got surrounded by a multitude of people like asking for autographs and photos. It was like seeing like fans uh, of a rock band chasing their idols, <laughs> sort of like. And uh, yeah, in that moment, I really realized the impact that we were having on people and uh, with this project. It was incredible. And we were really starting to think uh, that we were able to make transportation, a transportation project uh, like very cool for uh, new generations. So something in my mind in that moment like changed and, uh, and we really started like looking at the Hyperloop project as a really trans uh, transformative project and a cool project for the young generation to be part of. Yeah, I don't think engineers in, ever have gotten kind of an experience like rock stars. So you might be the only engineers on this planet to get that experience. I'm sure there are many more like uh, today, <laughs> pretty sure. So what do you think was it exactly about your technology that resonated with so many people? Is it just the fact that transportation just impacts everyone naturally? Yeah, that's what I will say. It's of course it's it's uh, the cool, futuristic, and fancy technology, very high speed, sustainable. But I think that the most important thing is really the perception of what these uh, new product, new transportation system will bring to our life. When you really reduce the barriers of traveling, like long distances, faster and better, and how those uh, this new opportunity will change your habits and really reshape community. And I think that everybody really understand the impact that the Hyperloop will have uh, in their lives. So I think that is really the combination of the cool technologies and the opportunity that really brings uh, in the society. And of course, the sustainable, sustainability angle. This is a very important thing. Like it's a green technology. People are very excited about this, uh, this opportunity to really make an impact uh, uh, in reducing CO2 emissions. And the younger generation are very, very, very receptive of uh, technology that uh, have this sustainability angle. And when you talk about a technology such as Hyperloop, which is almost unlike anything that we've ever seen before. Of course, you're gonna have a few adopters that are extremely excited from the beginning, but it's going to be an S-curve of getting it. And so how as Hyperloop, or maybe just more generally, these new concepts, how do you take that first group of people who are extremely excited and continue to build upon that until you get this rock star like following? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think that uh, our model of organization really helped over the years. We have a very unique model of organization. We call it crowdsourcing. It's a crowd-powered organization. We basically, at the beginning, 2013, we, we did a call to action to every like engineer, scientists, experts around the world that wanted to help us. And what we were offering at the time was uh, uh, basically an exchange of your knowledge participation. We were giving you stock options of the company in exchange. And that built a foundation of a very strong team, very diversified, many different cultures, many different backgrounds, people that really were passionate and are passionate about our project that started to collaborate with us. And little by little, we built on top of that community and bring uh, like more you know, unique expertise on the table while the product was developed, right? Sometimes uh, when you do innovation, you don't know what you don't know. So you need to be prepared and flexible to find the expert, the specific person that will help you to solve the new issue to really create innovation. And that's what uh, allowed us to really generate this passion and interest around the project by involving the community and supporting us uh, with the development of the technology and the, the project overall. Did you already have that network in place or how did you go about finding those experts where you wanted to expand? At the beginning, it was a lot of uh, outreach. It was uh, going to events, uh, educating people about the technology, going to universities and talk about Hyperloop. And of course, media helped a lot, in, especially in the early days. Medias were all over the place, I talking about uh, Hyperloop, uh, of course, Elon Musk uh, and the fact that he was the one introducing the Hyperloop concept uh, to the world that really helped. He has a huge outreach. And so a lot of people were like super excited since the very beginning. And what we did was like trying to really add more and continue to push for the message and involve the people all around the globe. We literally travel everywhere in the in the globe to, to find the right people and to, to build the local communities that supported us. That's awesome. I definitely know that community is so important for, for that growth when you have that strong foundation that that's really something that you can build off of. But now we can kind of go into the, the material science of it all and, and the technology behind Hyperloop. So can you give our listeners an overview of what exactly Hyperloop is and, and how it works compared to other transportation that we, we have today? Absolutely. I'll keep it simple to start with, and then we okay. can go more in details. So, so imagine like a capsule, like the carries between 35 to 50 people, and it travels also almost at the speed of sound. We are talking 760 miles per hour here. And we are inside a tube like from which we remove the air, so that we remove the air resistance when we travel at very high speed. And so the air drag is reduced at the, uh, inside this tube. And on top of that, we add also levitation system so that we can remove also the friction of the wheels. And all of those elements allow us to have a faster, more efficient, safer model transportation with very high level performances. On top of that, we have like solar panels on top of our tubes and infrastructure so we can capture like energy, produce more energy, that energy goes into power the system. And at the end of the day, in a, on average, we are even able to produce more energy than what we consume. So we are net zero or like even positive energy in, in certain cases. And this is uh, the Hyperloop. It's considered the fifth mode of transportation. And so now diving more into these specific applications. And so the first part is where it is. And so for Musk and the Boring Company, the focus is underground. And so as you are developing the technology and you're saying things like solar panels on top, that kind of implies that it's going to be on top. And so for Hyperloop Technologies, how do you see the like where it is, whether it be on top of buildings, just on the road or underneath the buildings? How does that look like? So the beauty of this technology, this infrastructure overall, is uh, the flexibility. You can go above ground, you can go ground zero, below ground. You can have like uh, different techniques of going underground from like uh, the what we call cut and cover. Basically, you excavate uh, enough to place your tubes and then you cover those tubes up, but you don't need like deep tunneling technique techniques, or you can go deep tunnelings, like really going really underground and excavate and, and create the, do like the boring of our, of our tube. So 
my first answer is that it really depends on the local environment, the local ecosystem, and the best uh, option for that specific route. Uh, our base design is above ground, is like an elevator infrastructure on top of uh, pylons with the two tubes, one to go and the other one to go back. That's the basic uh, standard infrastructure. And you can imagine this infrastructure being integrated with existing right-of-ways, in some cases like highways or like uh, railway. Uh, of course, the straighter you are, the better it will be because you can go faster. You want to keep like acceleration, deceleration, and all the forces for the passenger uh, very comfortable uh, overall. So you don't want to have like huge curves. When you have big curves, you just go slower. So it's sort of like a trade-off between uh, how fast you go in a certain point and how much uh, your uh, right-of-way allow you to build the, the system straight. Interesting. So... Then I guess from the material side, what materials enable this like next generation of technology? You mentioned like removing air resistance and the propulsion, you know, the levitation, like what materials contributed to taking that leap to something completely advanced? I point it, there are so many materials here yeah. that we can talk about. It's a fantastic uh, world of material science, the Hyperloop, because as you can imagine, we touch so many different industries. We have like the infrastructure world, the civil construction, where materials, of course, is super important. We have like aerospace uh, for the capsule. We have like all the things related to the propulsion and levitation for magnetics. So let me break it down like in some core uh, like material sure. elements. So the first and probably most important one, at least from a cost perspective, is the material of the tube. So today, as the first generation of the Hyperloop, we decided to build it with steel. And the reason why we decided to go with steel is because it's a mature technology. It's a technology that we know very well. We tested it for a very long time, and it holds the low-pressure environment incredibly well. And it's also very safe. So there are a lot of good characteristics of the steel. But of course, as a company, we're already looking at generation two, generation X, <laughs> like uh, in like in ten years. And we and of course, it's very important to study materials. And so composite materials. Uh, performance concrete, uh, all those materials that will create good performances for the low-pressure environment, being able to reduce cost, uh, be lighter. The lightweight, of course, of materials is always one of the most important things. So again, it's always a trade-off between the cost and the opportunity and the quality of the material, the technology that is surrounded that material itself. If we talk about the, our capsule, our vehicle, we decided to go directly uh, with composite materials. Uh, and that is the uh, advantage of having a lightweight, a lighter weight compared to other materials. And you know, when you have a lighter capsule, uh, you become way more efficient from an energy standpoint. So that it's an important materials that we, uh, we worked with our partners to find the, the best option for generation one. And again, we're going to continue evolving and innovating on, uh, on those materials to continue to make it lighter, smarter, with the idea to all continue adding more sensors, sensor embedded in the materials so that we can capture data. And of course, then there, are, there is the entire topic of uh, uh, magnets. We use uh, magnets on our system. We have uh, a lot of permanent magnets for our levitation system. The levitation system that we use is called the Indutrack. It's a technology developed by Lawrence Livermore National Lab here in the United States. We license in exclusivity this technology. This technology uses the permanent magnets in a very unique configuration in an interaction with a conductive surface, such as aluminum, copper, to create this levitation effect passively without the use of electricity. And so magnets is an important component, of course, of our product as, as well for the propulsion system. So many, many, <laughs> that, the answer is many. <laughs> And so maybe we can break it down a little bit. One question, maybe more generally across multiple fields, is that you're always talking about what's next, what's generation X. And so as someone who's already working on like a groundbreaking technology, and so there's already some sort of uncertainty about how exactly will everything work, how can you look ahead 10 years 
and try to choose materials based off things that you don't fully understand quite yet until you get to like full mass scale production. Without also knowing the maturity either, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an incremental development process. It's an incremental design process where you have very clear your generation one, you know that the generation one fulfill all the core requirements, uh, certification processes. We start from technology that already have a certification framework around us so that generation one can be easily certified. But of course, when you start working on your technology, you already know what are like things to improve, the challenges that you have. So uh, the team start working on ideas. And you know, when you have like a very good team that works uh, in multidisciplinary uh, teams and, and activities, then you start having a lot of new ideas that comes up. And this is the beauty of innovation. And so you start making a list of all those innovations that are come up along the, your journey. And there are the ones that can be applied uh, in generation two, or the ones that you know that you will need probably five years to, to develop, uh, and it will be a generation uh, five of, of the Hyperloop. As long as you always like put in context your innovation and you create a path of your product development process. And then the technology leader by leader will mature enough to be tested, to be integrated, and, and eventually to become like part of the product that you will implement in, in a specific uh, project. So then how did you take existing technologies? Like, so for example, in a previous episode, we learned that the fuselage of like Boeing airplanes are made of composites. So was that like a factor that came into play when you're designing your own fuselage system and, uh, or like your capsule system? Um, and then how do you kind of take that next step to find like just incremental improvements like you mentioned? Absolutely. And one of the best strategies that we used is create these uh, ecosystem of strategic partners that are part of basically of our development process. We have like today more than 50 companies that work with us as strategic partners. So they also have a stake of the company and they, and together with them, we identified their, the best technology that they already developed in their field. I give you an example. We have an amazing partnership with Itachi Rail. They developed uh, the traffic management and signaling system uh, for uh, high-speed rail. It's, uh, it's based on uh, a standard called the ERTMS uh, system. So when we started the collaboration with uh, Itachi Rail, uh, of course, uh, everything was around the traffic management and signaling. And so we discussed, uh, so what will be the best technology to apply to Hyperloop? And after uh, an analysis and, and, and a discussion, we decided that, and we agreed agreed that the ERTMS system was the best one to start with. And we applied basically that technology to the Hyperloop by creating that additional layer of innovation to adapt that existing technology already certified and used in high-speed rail in the Hyperloop. So here, the expertise of our partner together with the expertise of our team that knows the system architecture, that knows like the product overall, the combination of those two expertise allowed us to pick the right technology already existing and adapted to the new uh, environment. And I think that's great, especially because Hyperloop is sort of like a train system. When you take your technology and you apply it from others, how much could we uh, basically equivalent to first, like first order problems where it's basically a train in a vacuum moving at fast speeds? And then how much technology can we take? So I guess my question to you is that you have this great system with all these contributors why don't you think other companies who maybe are startups or maybe other more mature companies take this interesting approach and in getting all these other um, like insights from other industries? Oh, and we do. We do. We take uh, insight from other industries. In fact, I think it's one of our uh, strengths uh, is to be very horizontal to many different industries. So we don't consider ourselves uh, a rail system or a aerospace or autonomous vehicle. We are a mix of all those. And then we touch so many different industries. As I was saying, like, is the civil engineering, including the material science and like the uh, control and autonomous uh, vehicles. There is everything related to the passenger experience uh, and how you uh, bring in uh, the capsule technologies that are good for uh, the passenger to experience a better 
journey when they travel. So all those different areas come are coming from different industry and sometimes are startups, sometimes are boutique companies that are specializing in one specific topic, sometimes are big corporations that have the strength industrial capabilities, the footprint to not just develop the uh, certain parts of the technologies, but then also produce it and manufacture it and, and bring it to scale, which is like, equally important, right? You, We need always to remember this is uh, not just an R&D project. This is a mass transportation system that needs to be implemented globally all over the world. So global footprint, uh, huge uh, industrial uh, and production capabilities with maximum safety requirements, a lot of uh, activities uh, that will have to go for uh, operation and maintenance. So all those things uh, uh, creates a very comprehensive and complex ecosystem. As Hyperloop TT, we are sort of the network orchestrator at the center of this ecosystem and uh, connecting all those different dots. For sure. I guess I think what David was asking is like, he was very impressed and I'm very impressed with this business model, but it seems like it's unique in, in the way where you're giving like stock options to all contributors. I think what we were wondering is why don't other companies do that in your opinion? Uh, that's a great question. And I think that uh, one of the things that we are start promoting ourselves is uh, to use this model for other startups and other organizations to create open innovation, to bring their startups to the next level. It's a model that can be implemented uh, for sure. And in fact, uh, Harvard is teaching uh, our organizational model uh, to to their students, to their master students, and they sort of named us as the next generation of companies, how you build companies in the 21st century. So I think there is this impression that more companies over time will use this methodology to boost their innovation and to scale up uh, from startup to full mature companies. Yeah, there's a lot of power in having that network is, is something we've also realized in our own niche too. But kind of taking it back to the science, I was just wondering if you could dive into that magnetic levitation system a little bit more. That was super fascinating to me. Um, you mentioned, I think, aluminum and, and other metals. Can you talk about that? And then also maybe the, you know, how much electricity is needed um, and so that's more in the propulsion system, right? So can you just talk about that as a whole? Absolutely. So the levitation system works in this way. I'll be very high level here. But uh, um, in principle, we have uh, those permanent magnets in a very unique configuration. This configuration is called the Halbeck array. Halbeck array is basically this uh, sequence uh, of uh, permanent magnets, one next to the other, to form this array with different polarization. Uh, this Albeck array has the unique characteristic where uh, when moved on top of a conductive surface, example, aluminum, if the movement uh, is uh, in parallel to the surface, uh, the, more, the faster you go, the more uh, uh, electromagnetic field it generates in the relationship between the magnets and the aluminum. And this electromagnetic field points down because of the specific configuration of the Albeck array. So by moving on top of this conductive surface, you generate basically a lifting force that pushes the Albeck array up. So imagine now that you have multiple of those Albeck array, like at the bottom of our capsule, inside the, what we call the bogey that contains the different elements of the proportional levitation, the suspension system, and other elements. So you have like those bogies that have those Albeck arrays, and when the proportion system moves the capsule forward, will start creating this interaction between the Albeck array and the aluminum to create this lifting force. So here, what is important? It's important the type of uh, magnet that you have in your Albeck array. Also, the way that you dimension it, the way that you, the shape of the magnet. So there is a lot of design activities around the magnets. Also the type of uh, uh, rare hurt materials that you have in your magnets, the specific type of uh, permanent magnet that you pick, a lot of different elements. And the other very important one is the conductive surface. So our company decided to choose aluminum and it's not like just a plain aluminum. It's a little bit more complex that there is a layered aluminum. But the goal basically for that specific materials is to maximize 
the relationship between the lifting force that you create, the reduction of the drag force that it produces in this, uh, uh, let's say, uh, relationship between the magnets and aluminum, and the cost. So, of course, you want to have a very cheap material that is very con- uh, conductive, so that it creates a very good uh, lifting force. All those elements together in a trade-off analysis will bring you to the best possible materials and the best possible uh, configuration of all those elements. And when it comes to propulsion system, we use uh, a linear electric motor. In our specific case, the first generation will implement a linear synchronous motor, very high efficiency. A linear synchronous motor is a very mature technology in the industry is being used in many different uh, transportation systems uh, and usually reaches like uh, 90% efficiency in certain cases. So it's very, very high level. And the combination between how you design the integration of your propulsion system with the levitation system will give you the optimized product, basically, to consume the minimum amount of, of energy possible within that environment. And so when we talk about the next generation for these magnets, is innovation really driven around maybe new types of magnets? Or is it mostly that design process you're talking about, about identifying the best parameters and the like the spatial arrangement? It's both. It definitely, there is an optimization process where you continue working on the design, refine it, test it, validate it, and implement it. So that it's a, it's a continuous process that it goes over forever. As long as you continue innovating, you will always improve a little bit the the efficiency. And of course, there is a a specific component of materials. So one of the elements that uh, it's uh, it's great to investigate is how we reduce the rare hurt materials uh, in uh, the magnet so that eventually we'll be able to have magnets that don't require rare hurt materials. So this is a longer term strategy. And of course, we are not the expert of the production of the materials of the magnet itself, but we find the best companies on those fields and offer them the possibility to innovate and find solution to reduce those rare earth materials and to find better, more performing type of permanent magnets. Interesting. Okay. So I would love to learn more about like the linear electric motor. I actually don't know too much about it. You mentioned linear synchronous as well. Can you just talk about what exactly that is and how that helps contribute to reaching these speeds of 700 plus miles per hour? Absolutely. So also here, I'll stay high level. So a linear synchronous motors has two elements that uh, contributes to the motor itself. You have magnets. In our case, we put the magnets in the bogey. So we have a set of magnets, permanent magnets as, as well. That interacts with an electromagnetic field that is produced by coils that are on the track. So you have those coils that allow you to pass electricity across and by producing this electricity you basically pushes the magnets that are on the bogey forward and this is like uh, all controlled by a control system there uh, is a, a lot of software engineering activities where you program the specific control system to allow the proper flow of electricity in the coils uh, that uh, interacts with the magnets on the bogey. There is a specific component of the bogey that is called keel. There is like a vertical element that keeps the, the magnets together. And uh, that part interacts with the coils on the track. And uh, the flow of electricity, like a wave, you can imagine, pushes those magnets forward. And so it seems like that's like the only active part. It sounds like the rest of the design is passive. And so how much energy does it take to get up to those 700 miles per hour? And how can we compare that to maybe like a car or a plane? Yeah, so uh, the most important thing to consider is the overall energy consumption, right? Because it's always the combination of the different elements uh, that produces uh, the overall uh, energy consumption. and, And then you can offset with the energy generation on recouping energy, which is also an important element. So let me give you a general overview of uh, our energy consumption. And I'm going to go a little bit, uh, let's say, numbers uh, in a a range, because uh, I I don't want to be too specific here. Uh, So we have uh, our uh, vacuum system that it consumes between 20 to 30% 
of the electricity to create the initial vacuum. Then to maintain the vacuum, it requires way less. It's just a maintaining the low pressure environment over time. Then you have like the propulsion system. We're talking 60-70% of uh, the electricity overall of the system. And the remaining, it's between like uh, the different uh, control element, traffic management, the capsule uh, systems, the infotainment, uh, all the elements that are inside the capsule. So as you can imagine, like uh, the propulsion system is one of the elements where you spend more uh, electricity. And uh, that's where it's very important that when you define the best technology possible, you consider first uh, can I make it very efficient? And here the linear synchronous motors, as I was mentioning, can reach a high level of efficiency. Can it reach very high speed? Because of course, if you have a very efficient motor, but the motor cannot go more than 300 miles per hour, uh, then you don't have the technology that you need. So you need to combine those two elements. And then of course, there is a component of, can I recoup the energy? So like, uh, for example, we have a, a huge amount of recouping the energy through the braking system. So it's a loop of energy that needs to be considered. So it's not just how much the propulsion system consume itself, but the entire cycle of energy that needs to be considered. And uh, you want to reduce the heat dissipation, of course, uh, and all those different elements. So uh, as I was saying before, it's always about the design of the overall architecture that makes your system efficient. To answer your question about a comparison with other mode of transportation, of course, it's always difficult to make those comparisons because we are talking about different mode of transportation. It would be unfair uh, because each of them have different performances, have completely different environment, et cetera, et cetera. But let me tell you something that is very important. That is the principle of the Hyperloop itself. One of the biggest consumption of energy in transportation is the air resistance. The vehicle, when it goes, especially at high speed, encounters a huge resistance from the air in front of the vehicle. And the faster you go, and the more this becomes uh, a factor. And in a, it's an exponential factor, it's not linear. So when you pass from like uh, two, 300, um, uh, 200 miles per hour to three, 400, you really have an exponential curve. So there is a limit of many model transportation after which it becomes very energy intensive to push all their air forward. So that's the beauty of the Hyperloop. Hyperloop removes uh, for, from a design standpoint the problem of the air resistance. And that's why at a higher speed, you don't have this exponential curve anymore. You have a curve that uh, tends to go uh, stabilize with the speed. And that's the big innovation of the Hyperloop concept. And so high speed are not important possible anymore from an energy standpoint. And you can talk about an airplane, but you know, airplane when uh, in order to find a similar condition, they have to go like 35 uh, feet in the sky, 30 to 35,000 feet in the, in the <laughs> sky to, to get that uh, level of pressure and the level of aerodynamic resistance to go a higher speed. And so we bring the speed of the plane basically on the ground level. Okay, I'm going to change the topic a little bit, but it's still important to material scientists and engineers and really all scientists and engineers. It revolves around storytelling. So I feel like one key aspect that we didn't quite emphasize with this business model is the importance of relaying your vision and, and telling your story and pitching it in a way where other partners would want to invest their time and their money into your vision, right? Like, you know, if you can give them stock options, but if the company, if they don't believe in the company, then that isn't really worth a lot to them. So how did you go about that? Do you have any advice for storytelling when it comes to technology and, and science and engineering? Vision and a, and a specific mission is core. You need to identify early on what is your mission for your company. In our case, always been like uh, how we can create uh, a product, a Hyperloop system that it can be the next breakthrough in transportation that brings like uh, a next level of safety, next level of sustainability, next level of passenger experience. Very important. Remember, we are moving people. People are live uh, their lives by experiencing 
things and we want to make sure that when they experience uh, the hyperloop they have a good feeling and they can like uh, have many kind of experience based on what their, their, their that's their preference so in general it's important always to identify your mission early on and then of course how you communicate your mission it's critical to all the stakeholders and you need to consider since uh, the beginning who are the key influencers in your industry, your key stakeholders, the people that you really want to involve early on, because by having those people early on or those entities early on, then you can convince others to join. It's sort of like, it's a little bit of a chess game. Like you make a move knowing already what are your next three, four moves, right? And if you know that certain categories will help you to unlock other categories, then you try to bring those categories in earlier. So you play with those different elements. And uh, in our case, it was very important to have a buy-in from uh, strategic partners that had the competence already in the transportation industry. So the, the overall ecosystem was seeing Hyperloop a very solid play with the strong partners in the mix. So that it's not just about a as, uh, but is a movement, is a group, is an ecosystem working together to uh, make this a reality. Yeah, I think you did an excellent job, like explaining why vision and getting people to buy in is like, so important. And so I guess our question for you is, what is your vision for Hyperloop in 10 years from now? If we were investors, what are you getting us excited about to join on and give us, uh, give our uh, ideas and our knowledge to you? I would say a few things. First and most important, imagine like changing completely the paradigm of traveling. Like now you can really move from a city to another one instead of like two, three hours in 30 minutes. So now it becomes a commute. You want to grab a coffee in another city, like you can do it. You want to live in one place, work in another, study in another place, it becomes easier. You really change the dynamic of your community. You, you really redefine how uh, cities themselves are taught. So suburban environment uh, are becomes different from city center because now you can create a, a, a satellite city, a suburban environment way farther from the city center, but still feel they are very close with each other. So this element of reshaping our communities and our society. This is one point. And so it, to take this point to a little bit the next level, imagine like a metro system for the United States where I, all the city center are connected through Hyperloop and you can move literally across the United States with this very fast metro system uh, um, that, that covers the entire continent. That's one topic. The other topic, which is equally important is sustainability. We are facing as a society a huge issue, a huge problem by CO2 emissions and, and how we can have systems that are more efficient, the system that consider the production of energy embedded in the overall infrastructure. How we can, we can have a product that solves the issues that we are already facing and we need to solve as soon as possible. And uh, I see Hyperloop uh, in the next 10 years being at the forefront of this fight against the CO2 and against the climate change, against the challenges that the change of weather will bring. Like we have a lot of extreme weather condition lately, many places in the world. Having a resilience mode of transportation will be indispensable. When you start having like hurricanes or like floodings or things that could block your current mode of transportation, current network of systems, you need to have something resilient. And Hyperloop, because it's encapsulated in the tube, makes it very resilient uh, against uh, the external uh, weather conditions. So all those factors need to play and, and uh, define today to be ready as a society in 10 years, 15 years, when we're going to encounter those issues and we need to adjust. We are very good as a society, as a humans, to adjust to the condition, right? But now we have a lot of technology and we need to leverage as much as possible this technology to be ready in 10, 15 years. Absolutely. Well, you got me hooked. So uh, if you want me to be an investor, like I got you. <laughs> um, but for, I guess taking that the next level, what are like the main challenges right now that 
is keeping Hyperloop from being mainstream? Is it just like infrastructure related, adoption related? And what does that timeline look like for when people will be able to start traveling around the world in a Hyperloop system? Yeah, absolutely. Let me start saying that uh, we need to be aware that uh, create a new mode of transportation requires time. We cannot create a new mode of transportation like like we create a new cell phone, right? <laughs> there is a lot of safety and certification related components. Like it, it, it needs to have like a, a longer design process in order to be successful. So that's the first consideration. Second consideration is that uh, this uh, product needs to be certified, needs to be regulated. So. Of course, that framework becomes very important. It's to be ready by the time we implement our system. So as a company, as, a, as an industry, we are working with the different governments around the world to create that regulation framework, that certification process in order to be ready for the global implementation. And also that takes time, but it's, it's normal. It's a process that every industry goes through and that's what we are doing. So I will not necessarily say anymore it's like uh, if it's happening it's when it's happening and the, your question is right so my best estimate will be by 2025 2026 we are going to start having the first couple of uh, operational systems up and running there uh, maybe a smaller segment shorter segment uh, segment that will allow you to show every day the use of the technology moving passengers reliably safely and always with the right availability of the system. And from there to the next five to 10 years, then you start, you are going to start seeing like this uh, uh, product really being implemented globally. So this, uh, this uh, decade is the decade where we are going to be able to showcase already some, the first couple of routes. And then uh, in the next decade, I, I see really the expansion of the Hyperloop around the globe. And, and I guess maybe my last question is that in the next 10 years, I, if we get people, that's great. And I, I can see that's the focus. But when we think about how we live our lives and how we want to do things, a big part of it is like is shipping. And so for Hyperloop, it's not only going to connect each other, but I guess one, do you think it would disrupt the shipping? So now I don't have to ship something from California to Atlanta. I can just go there. Or do you think it would even make it even like better. And now instead of shipping over like a week, now it can ship over a day. And does that what like 20 or 30 years looks like? Great question. Great question. Absolutely. So Hyperloop is great, not just for passenger, but for freight. And we have in our uh, company, two different types of freight that we can carry. We have the light freight. So let's call it the ULD, air cargo, the, the, the small ones, the packages. And we can move those uh, goods inside the passenger system. So basically same capsule with a different configuration inside. Mm -hmm. And so we can optimize the corridor that we build for passenger also for those type of freight. And then we have another product that we call Hyperport, which moves the shipping containers, the sea containers. So this is another type of goods that we can move. And absolutely, as you said, it will definitely disrupt the industry as well, because now we're going to start having the, the opportunity to move uh, goods way faster in long for longer distances. So you can imagine even like very, very long routes uh, to, to bring like from one continent to another one certain goods that today through boats or through other modes will take a few weeks to go from a place to another one. So absolutely. And, uh, and of course, as you, you will probably imagine, it's a little bit easier from a regulation and certification standpoint to have uh, the system up and running. So there is a good chance that it will uh, speed up very quite a lot in the next uh, couple of years, the movement of goods through Hyperloop. Yeah, that's what I was thinking was, you could use them or you could use packages more as like the, the dummy testing right before <laughs> actually having human passengers. So it seems like that's actually potentially a next step before even like a passenger travel, right? But Punit, yes, let me say though that when you design a new mode of transportation, you need to start from the passengers right. because mm -hmm. there is a more complex design as more constraints. So if you start from something that is way simpler, then adapting that to the passenger, it's more complicated. 
If you do the opposite, it becomes easier. So that's why we decided as a company to really focus on passenger when we started the development of the technology, to have all the right technology and the right architecture to be able to carry passengers. And now there are activities to adapt it to freight is much easier. I think we, we are so happy that we made the decision early on because now our life, it's way easier than uh, how could have been like the opposite. So to wrap up this episode, what would you like our listeners to take away from this conversation in Hyperloop technology? And especially what is the impact material science can make on this form of transportation? Material science will really disrupt many industry in the years to come. So it's one of the most exciting industry that I can see really changing a lot of things in our lives. And uh, new computing power, new technologies that allow you to simulate material science will literally give us the opportunity to have a leapfrog in a lot of materials. And that will impact and, uh, and there will be a spiral exponential innovation process because materials is basically the foundation of most of the things that we have and we do. So by multiplying their uh, capability of that foundation, you will multiply exponentially everything that is on top of, of that. So I really encourage like scientists and, and engineers that like material science to really keep innovating in that world, use the most innovative computer technologies. Now quantum is coming and quantum will disrupt a lot of industry as well. Use those technology, learn how to leverage those uh, computing technologies technologies to analyze, test, uh, simulate new materials that can be applied to so many industries. This is going to be a game changer. And please, when you do that, always think about the sustainability angle. That's very important. Materials that are more sustainable for the environment. So if I have to leave it with a message is like, uh, let's work all together on sustainability to make sure that the scientists and the future scientists and engineers will put that at the center of their innovation. It's core. It's very important. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us. I feel very motivated and very happy that I chose this path of material science. And it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to continue those discussions with you guys. Absolutely. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.